Let me invite you to take your Bibles and join us in the Old Testament book of Psalms. Psalm 139 will be our focus this morning. Psalm 139. We're in the middle of a series on the book of Judges. We're near the end of that series, but I have opted to take a week off and consider Psalm 139 with you. Many have described Psalm 139 as the ultimate psalm. You might say, well, no, everybody knows it's Psalm 23. Well, it wasn't back in the day. I've said that many times. Uh, my theory is the reason Psalm 23 is so important is it's only six verses. And we like our stuff short. And we even like our preaching short. So, there you go. So Psalm 23, and I, I jest about that really. Psalm 23 is a treasure to me, to you, to uh, anybody who's a follower of God and Christ. But this psalm is uh, a little longer. We won't read it all, but we'll read a portion of it. It is uh, perhaps the ultimate psalm because it summarizes what all the rest of them are saying, uh, only differently. It also comes at the end of a very long section in the Psalms, section that exceeds probably 20 or 30 chapters, of praise psalms. So you praise, 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 and you read your psalms. If you read a psalm a day or a couple of psalms a day and so forth, you'll find that when you get past about 107 or so, there's just... There's just one theme, and it's praise. There's a reason for that. Don't have time to explore all that together with you this morning, but I assure you that Psalm 139 is sort of the culmination of that. It's kind of where it's all heading, and it's finally here. So here we are reading Psalm 139. It's also an appropriate psalm for us to consider on Mother's Day and on Parent-Child Dedication Day for us to think about life and children new birth, so forth. Uh, we're delighted to think about this psalm together. So I, I want to read just 16 verses of this 24-verse psalm. Let's read. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them in the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. These are treasured words, obviously, and we rejoice in them this morning. We are thankful for the kindness of God. Many have pointed out that this is a four-stanza psalm. There are 24 verses divided by four. That's six verses. So basically, every six verses is a new focus, if you will, a stanza in a song. The first, if you will, six verses talk about the knowledge of God, that God knows everything. The second six verses, 7 to 12, talk about the presence of God, that God is everywhere all the time. And then this third section that we conclude with talks about the power of God, that God is powerful beyond our understanding. And then he concludes with praise as a result of those three things. There are theological terms given to that, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence. I won't bore you with that, but I will tell you that the point of all of this is that God is not like you. And that is the first theological truth that every person should learn. That God is not like you. So I hope today that you will read this psalm with me and be reminded of that truth. I want to summarize all of this by reminding us that God is a God of life. Ultimately, because He's the God of life, He's also the God over everything pertaining to life, everything that threatens life, everything that secures life eternal. God is God over all of that, and this is the point of this psalm. So I want you to note, first of all, under this general theme of God's omniscience or his knowledge of things, I want you to note a few things in the opening six verses. Number one, verse one, there is a God. The psalm begins, O Lord. You'll note that's the covenant name for God, often translated Yahweh. There is a God. That uh, is pretty important today, that you understand that you are not the authority in your life. I uh, listen to people like you do pontificate about their appeals to various cultural authorities. We live in a day where political authority is trumpeted around as if somehow because we have the White House or we have the State House or we have whatever because we have control somehow, we are the authority. Then there's this debate, 
over whether or not the Constitution has authority. And after all, what does the Constitution have to do with anything? And how do we apply that or interpret it or understand it? And what, what is the application of all of that? And all of these things are germane, of course, to this conversation about authority. And in the end, ultimately, people are comfortable, as it were, with the cultural noise or malaise that all of these authorities are competing with each other, and we just need to sift through it and sort through it and so forth. And then along comes a Christian who says, well, my ultimate authority is God. And he is roundly mocked. He is mocked by the culture. The greater culture has no place or category for God. God, after all, cannot be seen. However, Romans 1 says he can be clearly seen in his invisible attributes. One of the most interesting verses in the Bible, God can be seen by his invisible attributes. Well, I thought it was invisible. How can I see what's invisible? Well, I don't know. I can feel. I can taste. I can see. I can hear. I can think. I can compare. I can contemplate. But in the end, we live in a world that wants to push God out, not just put him on the edge or the periphery of life, but push him out. And we better not get caught up in that, friend. This psalm begins there. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. There is a God. But he continues. That's not the point, of course. There is a God who not only is, but a God who knows. And you'll note how he describes it. Verse 2. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. Hello. He's in our houses. He's in our cars. He knows what's going on in our homes and in our lives. He knows about our lives. He knows about our actions. He knows about our thoughts. He said, you discern my thoughts from afar. Yes, he does. God knows what's going on in your life and in my life. He knows our words. He knows our words even, he says here, before they're on our tongues. Verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it. Let me tell you what that means. That means before you speak it, he knows it. I say this all the time about prayer. You don't really need to tell God everything there is to know about every prayer request. Now, God, you know that so-and-so needs so-and-so, and so-and-so needs so-and-so, and so-and-so needs so-and-so. I'm not telling you don't do that, but at the end, it probably doesn't take 30 minutes to alert God to everything that he needs to know. You can get right to it. God fix that. God solve that. God get in the middle of that. I pray all the time for people, God knock them in the head. Do something. Do something to your glory. You know what? God's smart enough to figure out what the do something is, and I don't have to tell him. 
Now, God, if you would just manipulate it this way and, you know, just open this door, change this, I I don't waste any of that. I I don't pray like that. I don't need to tell God how to do it. God, they need some money. Give them some money. God, he needs, he needs the deliverance from that problem, that challenge, that, that heartache. He needs help in the comfort of his heart here and there, so forth. In the end, I, I just don't try to figure it out, solve it all. I just don't. But it's not because I don't care. It's just because I just figure God knows it everything. He just knows everything. He knows what to do, how to fix it, how to solve it. I don't have to tell him what to do. The reality is I'm not very good at being God. I don't masquerade as God on Mondays, Sundays, Tuesdays, Fridays. I just say, God, please come. Please fix it. Please help it. There's a God who knows. He knows it all. He knows my actions, my thoughts, my words. Even before I know my words, he knows my words. But that's not all he says in verse 3. He says that uh, down in verse 5, in fact, he says, You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Now, this this is an interesting phrase in the language of the Bible, this phrase, you hem me in. Now, when, when I use that word today, and I would say most people, when we use that word, we use that word in a restrictive sense. Being hemmed in feels restrictive. You, you have restricted me. You've hemmed me in. And you would say, well, God is restrictive. And I will tell you that's one of the modern caricatures of God, is it not? That God is too restrictive. The reason we reject God is because He's way, way, way too restrictive. And I I need a God who's permissive. I need a God who lets me do what I want, when I want, with whomever I want, for as long as I want. I don't need a God who restricts me or hems me in. So this word, hem me in, behind and before, that sounds extremely oppressive to the modern culture. And uh, I would suggest to you there is some semblance of truth to that, isn't there? Susan and I raised three girls. We now have nine grandchildren, six of whom are girls. We are fluent in pink. We know all about it. And so early on, we set criteria, if you will, as parents, we hem them in. And we don't regret one minute of it. And you need to be busy doing the same thing. You say, well, I don't hem in quite the way you hem in. Hey, that's fine. Don't be me. I'm not going to be you. But I will tell you, friend, that's what parents do. They hem their children in. They hem them in not because they want to restrict their lives and kill them, hurt them, wound them, make them miserable. They hem them in because they want very much for the prosperity of their children, for the joy of their children, for the kindness of of their love to be manifested in these boundaries or fences in their lives. You hem me in before and behind. Now, what happens when children push against those fences or even jump the fence? Well, the ultimate word for that, of course, is rebellion. Anybody here want to raise rebellious children? You want to grow up to be a rebel? Not talking football here. You want to grow up and be somebody who's constantly has no regard for fences, being hemmed in? 
There is a God, and he knows everything that's going on. And because he knows everything that's going on, he builds structure in your life. God intends this structure. Parents, grandparents, extended family, even the church. It's a part of the structure that God intends in your life. There needs to be voices in your life. There need to be authorities in your life. There need to be these things in your life that are a part of the culture. Even tells us in Romans 13 that government is ordained by God in order to build structure in your life. One of the things we've seen in the book of Judges, and we've studied Judges, is there is no authority. They just do whatever they want. And guess what happens? God gets his fill of that. God may take his hand off for a moment, for a year, for several years. God may do that, but ultimately, because they are his, he's coming back. He's going to get in the middle of that. He's going to fix that. He's going to change that. He's going to work in circumstances to bring about a different point of view because he is in the business of hemming in his children, not for the purpose of restriction, not for the purpose of taking away their joy, but in fact, building joy. There is a God, and he knows. But then there's another word there in verse 5. He says, you lay your hand upon me. Now, again, the world will take that phrase and suggest that that's, a, if you will, a synonym for abuse. Don't lay a hand on me. It's a synonym for abuse. And there would some who would say this is, uh, if you will, a license for divine abuse. That God lays his hands upon us and he <coughs> has his ambition to somehow hurt us, wound us, bring pain to our lives. The goal of God is our pain. <laughs> that, of course, betrays our bias against God, not our understanding of what the Bible is saying here. This phrase here, lay your hand upon me, is used in Genesis 48, the exact same Hebrew phrase, used in Genesis 48. I'm not going to ask you to turn there. I'm just going to remind you of the story. Joseph, of course, is down in Egypt. Jacob, his father, has been reunited with Jacob, and all the family is there, and, and God has saved Israel by bringing them to Egypt where there is food. Jacob is near the end of his death. At the end of chapter 48, he's going to begin to bless his children. Joseph has uh, two sons, the older and younger, and Jacob is going to bless them. And the Bible says at the end of, of Genesis 48 that Jacob lays his hands on Joseph's sons, and he does it this way, does it crossways. And there is a little dialogue there about, oh, Dad, you're doing it wrong. You know, you need to go, this, this, is, the, this is the, your right hand needs to be on the oldest because he gets the blessing. And Jacob says, no, I'm doing it this way, on purpose. It's the will of God, so forth. But the point, of course, is the phrase is he laid his hand on his grandsons to bless them. Does that sound oppressive to you? Does that sound angry to you? Does that sound mean-spirited to you? Does that sound controlling to you? No, when, when you lay your hand on your children or your grandchildren to bless them. So what is God doing here? He's laying his hand upon his children. In other words, friend, this is a phrase not of oppression, but a phrase of comfort. 
a phrase of joy, a phrase of proximity. I'm here. Can you imagine in your life if you went your way and you didn't know, didn't believe that God was with you? That somehow you were on your own, you were walking a high wire without a net, and that you were living your life dangerously and you had no support? What if you had gone into battle and it was just you against the world, so to speak, you alone? No, you don't, you don't want that. You want, you want your brothers with you. you. You need some help. You need backup. You need proximity. In this case, you need your Father, your Heavenly Father. So a better way to understand this phrase for me is I always think about a shepherd. What does a shepherd do with sheep? Well, sheep are very vulnerable. And they need someone who has a rod and a staff. They comfort me. Yeah, why? Because no matter what's coming, the guy with the rod and the staff is on my side. And the rod and the staff are overwhelming against the potential enemies of sheep. So what is the psalmist telling us? You hem me in, Behind and before, your, your proximity to me is a comfort to me. Uh, a similar phrase is found in John chapter 10. I, I will invite you to turn there. John 10, verse 27, where Jesus uses the shepherd analogy. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus says, it is a comfort to my sheep to know that they are in the hand of the Father and in the hand of the Son. Because their hands are different hands compared to the threats against your life. This phrase in Psalm 139, God lays his hand upon you, is intended to bring comfort. <laughs> Why do we need comfort? Well, I'll just dial this up for you if I could. The fact that God knows everything about you, does that comfort you? Or does that maybe a little bit overwhelm me? You know, God knows what you're thinking. He knows your evil thoughts. He knows your unkind thoughts. He knows your judgmental thoughts. He knows your prejudicial thoughts. He knows what you're planning. He knows if you're planning to sin. He knows if you're planning not to be faithful. He knows if you're planning to break promises or covenants. He knows all these things. He knows the good, yes, but he, if he knows the good, he knows the bad. Does that bring comfort to you? That God knows your dirt, your stuff? The Bible says he does. He knows it all. So what is he saying in verse 5? He's saying, look, you hem me in, and then you lay your hand upon me. You hem me in and you hold me. You, you hem me in and you clutch me. You hem me in and you won't let me go. Thanks be to God. Though he knows 
Though he knows everything, though he knows all the highs and lows and the goods and the bads and the clean and the dirty, though he knows all of that, he still is with us. He's with us. He has laid his hand upon us. I always think about that Jacob experience again in Genesis 48. He's going to bless his two grandsons. How much does he know about his grandsons? Not much. I mean, he's, he's been up north in Israel. Grandsons have been growing down here in Egypt. How, how pure are his grandsons? We don't know. How, how devoted are his grandsons? I don't know. How much do they share the values of, of Israel, his life, his, his uh, desires for them, his dreams for them? I, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us any of that. Any more than any of us know. You know, how, how do we know? We don't know the full heart experience of people who are our grandchildren. We, we'd like to know. But, but we don't. We, we want to know, but we don't. But nonetheless, we, we still lay our hands of care upon them. They're not perfect, but we can, we can love them, and we do love them. Why? Because they're ours. And we want them to know that whatever they need, we can do what we can do. Now, now run that up the pole, if you will, of your own heart, and think about this. God does know. He does know everything. That's the point of this first stanza. He knows it all. He knows every detail of my life, and still he puts his hand upon me. He's there. He hasn't abandoned me. He's not forsaken me. He's not left me. He's right here, right here with me right now, right here with you right now. He's laid his hand upon me. He's hemmed you in. You are his. He has his eye upon you. He knows it, good and bad, but he hasn't turned away. (laughs) Such knowledge is too wonderful to me. (laughs) Amen. There's a second thing you see here in that he's not only a God who knows, but he's a God who's present. Present, that's another section here, 7 down to verse 12, where the emphasis is on the presence of God. I won't say quite as much about this, but I want you to note what he he asked rhetorically, where shall I go from your spirit or flee from your presence? And then he gives extremes. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. Or if I ascend all the way to the grave, Sheol, the place of the dead, you are there. If I take the, the wings of the morning, a reference, that's a, an, a, an idiom, a figure of speech in ancient Hebrew that, that has reference to the dawn, the sun, as it tracks across the sky. Today's going to be one of those beautiful sunny days I think. So as the sun came up this morning, it began its traverse across the sky, east to west. They, they, Hebrews had a, uh, an idiom or a figure of speech calling that the wings of the morning. The sun is beginning its journey. If I take the wings of the morning or dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, you see the extreme there, going from the, all the way from the sun down to the bottom of the sea. His, his point, of course, is how can I find myself separated from you. Even there, verse 10, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. There is a God who's present with my life and your life. So I want to encourage you today that not knowing all the details of your life or the circumstances is, is, is not important for those who are not you to know all those details as long as God knows them. 
And he does. He's with you. He is present in the midst of those circumstances. Again, we go back to the Old Testament. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There are three men thrown in the fire. They look in the fire later, and they count one, two, three, four. There's four men in the fire. Where did that fourth guy come from, and why are those first three guys still alive? Well, the reason, the reason the first three guys are still alive is because the fourth guy is in the fire. If the fourth guy's not in there, the first three guys are not standing up. But they're going to come out in a little while, and they're not even going to smell like smoke because that fourth guy was in the fire. God is present. He is present in your life and in your challenges and your heartaches and your sorrows. He's present in your joys and in your blessings. I don't know how your Saturday went yesterday. I don't know how your Friday went this week, or your Thursday went this week. I don't know what's going to happen this week. I just know the Lord has promised to be with his children. He's going to lay his hand upon you. He's going to remind you, I'm here. I'm here. And it doesn't matter if you're on the sun, if you're down in the ocean, east, west, north, south, doesn't matter. Does God love what's going on in our culture? Not completely. God doesn't love unrighteousness. God doesn't love a lack of holiness. God doesn't love injustice. But does God love you? Absolutely. You're walking in a dark time culturally. We read these verses, and we can't help but think of the abortion question. Today's Mother's Day, and we celebrate these beautiful babies, and we rejoice in promoting a, not only a, a family experience or culture where children can grow and their parents can raise them in a Christian home, but also we talk about the Baptist Children's Village helping those families who are disadvantaged various ways, hurt, wounded by sin and difficult situations and complexities that are above my pay grade. But we're committed, even as you, to in advancing life. This past week, of course, there was this memo leaked from the Supreme Court suggesting that the justices are preparing to overturn the 1973 Supreme Court decision that made abortion legal in all 50 states. And, of course, the noise skyrocketed in the media about this, how terrible it is and how damaging it's going to be and how many of this is going to happen and how tragic this is going to be and so forth. And I am not suggesting that any of this is easy. I am simply suggesting that we know that God is not in agreement that the killing of life is righteous. I think about it this way, if I might just chase a bit of a rabbit really, really quickly. You know, the, one of the Ten Commandments is this shall not murder. The word kill there doesn't mean like killing a deer. That's not the word. The word there is really the word for murder. So it's taking life, taking human life. So it's not killing 
non-human life. That's not what it all means. So it means murder. So thou shalt not murder. And then you read the balance of the Old Testament, and you'll find that, that God has provisions for, if you will, categories of murder. There is the murder with malice, or what we'd call capital murder. And then there's the category of manslaughter. If a man accidentally or incidentally takes another person's life, there's a, a code in the Old Testament for how you handle that. The point, of course, is everywhere you turn, God protects life. Everywhere you turn. Now, why is murder wrong? Well, the answer, of course, is because God says it's wrong. That's the easy answer. Yeah, but why is it wrong? Well, it's wrong because God is not a murderer. Satan is a murderer. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. This is the work of the enemy. The sin in Genesis 4 is Cain rises up and he murders his brother. And God says in Genesis 4, the blood of your brother cries out from the ground. God is not endorsing or agreeing with murder. He is not yours, mine, anybody else's. He's not. And as such, we read this psalm and we think, what is God doing in our day? He's doing much. He's doing it through his people and for his people and by his people. But meanwhile, we live in a very difficult day, and we wonder sometimes, where is God? And the answer is Psalm 139. Where shall I go from you? The answer is nowhere. You can go high, you can go low, you can go left, you can go right. You can go where nobody can see, but he sees. He sees. He is present. Even the darkness, he says in verse 12, is not dark to you. This is our God. Then, of course, ultimately, he sends his only begotten son in the world so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And what is his name, this son, who is the only begotten son? His name is Emmanuel, translated meaning God with us. Where have we heard that before? The great comfort of my life is that God is with me. He lays his hand upon me, and he is everywhere I go. He is everywhere I am. He is with me. He shepherds me. He provides for me. He protects me. It's impossible to argue from silence. Uh, think about it this way. If, uh, if you've raised teenagers, you know that at some point you have a conversation that goes something like this. Maybe it's an 11-year-old. Maybe it's a 13-year-old. Maybe it's a 15-year-old. Maybe it's a 16-year-old who wants to take the car for the first time by him or herself without regard to your expectations. Who knows? The point, of course, is there very, invariably there is some kind of conversation where your child makes some sort of veiled suggestion that you don't love them or you don't trust them or you don't care for them or you don't understand how wrong you are and how much damage you're doing by being such a, a parent who is so wrong. You have these kind of conversations with your children. They're pushing against the fences, and you have to make sure that the boards are nailed tightly. I always think about that when I read this passage. 
Is it possible to say of God today, you don't know what it's like being me? You don't know how hard my situation is. You don't know how difficult my situation is. So I'm going to compromise because it's really hard. Or I'm going to complain because it's really hard. Or I'm going to push back because it's really hard. The reality is, Psalm 139 says, not only does God know your situation, He's somehow involved in your situation. He has protected you all these days to this point so that you can somehow walk through this situation. Now, none of our situations are the same. There are people in this room whose situations are grievous. They're heartbreaking. This is not to minimize any of those. But it is to say, God, our shepherd, is shepherding all of us well. He has not put down his rod or his staff. He is leading us beside still waters. He is shepherding us against those enemies that we don't even understand. And just like a teenager cannot begin to calculate how much energy you've put in to their care, you, friend, cannot begin to calculate how much energy God has put into your care. He knows your situation. There's a last thing. He's not only a God who knows, or a God who's present, but He's a God who is all-powerful. He's all-sufficient. <laughs> yes, indeed, He is. Beginning in verse 13, He says, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He's power, powerful in birth. Some would say because they are have no category for God. That's just science. You know, it's just boy meets girl, and I guess we'll leave the science there. It's just power. You know, it's just the power of science or the power of nature. Well, I'm not arguing the use of terms here today, but I am suggesting that what we do learn from science is that there is some sort of order, right? I mean, that certain things work certain ways. A leads to B. And you put A and B together, and pretty soon you get C. And it happens all the time. In science, they call those laws. Nature, they call them laws. There's a reason why the sun comes up. They can actually tell you years in advance what time the sun is going to come up. Here we are on May the 8th, 2022. Do you know we can tell you what time the sun is going to come up 25 years from now on May the 8th? How? Because they're science. Actually, science is just a word that describes the order that God has created. That somehow there is a designer. That somehow there is purpose behind all of this. Or to use the word that Psalm 139 uses, there is power. Why is all this work? Because of power. Well, who's the power? Well, the world might say it's just science, just nature. Nature is powerful. 
And indeed, nature is powerful, but there is a power who's in charge of nature, and that is our God. What we learn in this psalm, of course, is that God is not passive or benign. He's not disinterested. God does not take hands off with the children that he loves any more than you do with the children you love. But he rather is very active. Look at verse 15, 16. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. God is somehow orchestrating things in ways that are mysterious to me. Say, well, Brother Greg, I'd like to know, how much does God know, and when does he know it? Well, can you ask a question that can be known instead of questions that can't be known? What we know about God is what God has told us, and God has not told us how much he knows, because after all, you don't have the brain to handle that much knowledge. Neither has he told us when does he know it. When does he do what he does? I can't argue, again, from silence, but I can tell you that the Bible declares that somehow God is involved in the womb, even before the womb, that God is involved in opening the womb or closing the womb, and that God is ultimately involved in the design of that child. I'll never forget when our oldest came home, we we had a baby, and I looked at her and I said, she looks like me. I was comforted by that, by the way. And I was also challenged by that. I mean, I've never had a baby. You say, well, Brother Greg, like, are are you smart? Or that other word that we don't use? Well, yeah, but, you know, until you feel it, you don't really understand it. She came came and she looked like me. And I remember Susan's mother saying, she looks like you. (laughs) Okay. I'm not in charge. I don't do design. Said, I wish you looked more like your mother. Well, she did. She, she, she outgrew it, thanks be to God. <laughs> but God is powerful. How powerful? <laughs> more powerful than you can understand, friend. So what purpose do we serve in all of this today? Hmm. Well, we should end where the psalm ends. Verse 24, see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You know, the fact that you know everything and that you're everywhere and that you're all powerful, that's just more than I can handle. So in the end, Father, Almighty God, lead me in the way everlasting. So what is the way everlasting? Well, we don't know exactly how much the psalmist knew about a thousand years before Christ. But since we live some 3,000 years later, 2,000 years after Christ, we do know a little more. We know that God indeed sent His Son to lead the way, to show the way. And in fact, to be the way. And to take us with him. That God who is with us sent his son to be with us. 
And he is with these families that stood before us a moment ago. And he's with this church as we shoulder to shoulder love children with them. And he is with every other circumstance in this room as well. God is with us. So Lord, lead us in the way everlasting. Because there's a lot of opportunity to get caught up in the noise and the garbage and the smut and the dirt and the rancor and the acrimony of this culture. Let us not get caught up in that. Let us keep our eyes fixed on glory and God who reigns over glory and Christ who has come to be the way to take us into that glory and lead us in the way everlasting. We are not building a kingdom here. We are building a kingdom that is forever a city that has foundations whose maker and builder is God. Let us follow him and let us remember that Jesus makes it possible for us to have any hope of doing so. To God be the glory. He has made us and keeps us and will one day carry us home. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we do rejoice in your mercies today. We thank you for the kindness you've shown as the men and women of God gather in this room right now. We thank you that you have loved us so, that you have protected us, you have shepherded us, and you are continuing to do so. Your wisdom is above reproach. Your kindness and goodness, Lord, is beyond our understanding. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, and we are fearfully and wonderfully cared for. One day, we shall be brought home. Lead us in the way everlasting. Thank you for life, for being a God of life and the God of our lives. We love you so. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.